so we're here with Andrew, Dr. Andrew Foster, who is a resident in anesthesia and analgesia over at the Alma Mater Royal Veterinary College. Uh, he's kindly agreed to share his time here to be the inaugural guest on the, I suppose, Veterinary Emergency Critical Care Education podcast, which is really long and probably warrant shortening, but we'll get to that in due time. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and what you're up to these days? Sure, sounds good. Um, so I worked uh, for two years uh, in general practice. My first year I spent uh, at a practice called Highcroft in Bristol um, after graduation. And I spent a year there doing an internship, which was 50-50 referral and first opinion work. And then I stayed on with them uh, for another year in a job that I kind of created uh, with a couple of members of the team to help support the internal medicine team and the anesthesia team there because they were quite short-staffed at the time. Um, but it meant I got to do a lot of anesthesia and work very closely with uh, a number of different teams and get some pretty good experience for then applying to the residency, which is uh, where I'm at now at the RVC. Nice. So you made the job for yourself? Yeah, kind of. So there was a bit of input from a number of team members, but there was a bit of a, a gap in uh, in staffing, really. And they needed an assistant uh, to get cases into imaging modalities and, and various things, obviously surrounding anaesthesia a lot of it. And they had an MRI service as well, which they were running uh, with a portable scanner once a week. And it gave me the opportunity to run that and oh, manage nice. any communication and anaesthesia for those cases, which, again, great experience from an anaesthesia point of view. Very cool. Some very interesting cases going through the scanner, yeah. See, so if it doesn't exist, you just make it happen. Exactly. Just get after it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was ideal experience, as I say, getting to work with the anesthesia team there. Very much springboarded me onto the residency, I think, because the, the experience was very specific. And were you set on this from graduation, from starting vet school, from final year? Pretty much from final year, through rotations. Uh, so I was always interested in medicine and ECC and anaesthesia as well while I was going through rotations. Uh, I think anaesthesia wasn't my first choice of an elective when I was going through through uh, my final year, but actually I kind of landed into that and I'm really glad I did because the, the practical side of that rotation and getting really hands-on with the cases was awesome. And it just showed me getting out into practice when I did the internship the anaesthesia was definitely the way forward. It was the perfect combination of pharmacology, which I happened to have hated when I was studying at vet school, but for some reason, being able to see that in action, uh, plus the emergency side and the critical care associated with anaesthesia as well, really uh, yeah, floated my boat, I guess. Nice. Well, I think that's, that springboards us nicely <laughs> into uh, what we're going to chat about today, which is, um, I suppose, primarily sedation and analgesia in the emergency setting, mm -hmm. maybe anaesthesia if we get to it. Sounds good. Um, and then uh, starting with a, a pharmacology take, mm -hmm. different drugs, different cases, and then we can move on maybe to some more of the local anaesthetic work you've been doing and how Sounds you can great. apply that in the ER. Did a smashing brachial plexus block on a, an elbow fracture the other day. Oh, perfect. Oh, it, was, it was really tasty. Living the local dream. <laughs> Well, so I think the the reason for this talk is a lot of the students who came through the anesthesia rotation, their biggest freak out is, why do I have access to so many drugs? What the hell do I do with them? Yeah. What doses do I use? Totally. And how do I combine them? Mm -hmm. So from, a, I suppose, starting from a, an A to Z point of view almost, mm -hmm. um, acepromazine, emergencies, love it, hate it. What are your thoughts? I would be cautious. 
with use of esprosin in emergency cases. I think that's a general feeling amongst anaesthetists um, and probably emergency clinicians as well. Um, I think we need to be concerned about uh, a lot of our patients presenting possibly in shock or with some degree of fluid unloading or hypotension already. Um, and I think it's uh, something that we need to be cautious about in terms of causing vasodilation in those situations. Certainly if patients are just um, clinically stable but very stressed within the hospital, there are um, a number of people who will use it for anxiolysis. But other than that, I think we need to be careful using it at really sedative doses. Nice. Yeah, so your typical, um, I suppose your respiratory distress patients, mm -hmm. um, typical bulldog coming in, upper respiratory yep. tract obstruction, bit of acepromazine might help settle them out. But Potentially. It wouldn't be my first choice on presentation, but certainly it's something I think we can consider in those kind of patients just to provide some longer-term anxiolysis, just low doses. We're talking 5 microns per kilo, maybe 10, uh, if they're, it's really not having much of an effect on them. Obviously, we always have to remember that it's not reversible when yeah. obviously compared to some of the other drugs um, uh, where that's a little bit of disadvantage for esprosine, but certainly getting kind of 6 to 9 hours of anxiolysis can be quite useful in those kind of patients. Help chill them out. Yeah, exactly. That's the main aim, isn't it? Well, and so hopefully chill out the clinicians as well. Oh, <laughs> it's my prime objective is my, my stress reduction. Exactly. It's important. It really is. Well, so what's your what's your concern with espermazine? Because it's very commonly used. A lot of people use it for mm -hmm. anesthesia, for sedation, mm -hmm. for uh, as an anxiolytic. So mm -hmm. how can it get us into trouble? In these well, patients. I think in a lot of these patients, the, the main issue is going to be the vasodilation. And I think in a lot of general practice situations, we're talking about significant doses and often not necessarily with blood pressure monitoring. So I think a big issue that we have in general practice is that people might own a Doppler, but they can be quite fiddly if you're not practicing and setting them up or using them even in an emergency situation. So I think there, if we have uh, any concerns about blood pressure, I think it's one to try and avoid um, if we don't have a full set of information on our patients. Certainly um, under GA, we're finding that a lot of general practitioners are using really good doses of acepromazine, um, where uh, alternative options may be more appropriate, but also without blood pressure monitoring, you're yeah. not necessarily going to see that vasodilation that, that you're creating yourself, really, on top of the vasodilation that you're particularly going to get with volatile agents as well. So maybe one just to, to consider a little bit more closely, especially when we're, we're not paying as much attention to blood pressure as perhaps we could be in general practice sometimes. Fair enough. When you say good, do you mean high? Uh, a good doses? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Good, not as in appropriate, perhaps, but more in terms of, uh, you know, a reasonable, reasonably high dose, definitely. Yeah, because you see those nice... Um, the 1997 mm -hmm. Domator chart lying around that's got the, exactly. the whopping doses of everything on them. Exactly, and even in the formularies as well, the dose ranges we've provided are huge, and I think that's something that really affects new grads as well, is how do you take that formulary and decide which dose to use out of that range, it's huge. So I think obviously that only comes with clinical experience and, yeah. um, and speaking to you know, other members of the practice, but certainly there is a bit of a, a culture of using acepromazine uh, in this country, I think, for pre-medication, which is not necessarily a, an issue in many situations. Um, but obviously with any drugs like that, we have to be considering what effects they may be having on our patients and whether they're an appropriate choice as well for every situation. Mm. Love it. Um, well, I suppose that moves us on to maybe in a more appropriate choice for our respiratory patients. Mm -hmm. but 
maybe questionable any others, the classic Butulfenor. Classic. Yeah, great drug. I think um, in the right situation, I think it's got quite a lot of uses. So I think in those respiratory patients, as you've you've suggested, I think Butulfenor is definitely a go-to drug to start with. And, and I think we've got quite a wide, safe uh, you know, dose range as well for Butulfenor. I think particularly for our brachycephalic patients, starting at 0 0.2, 0 0.3 even for those patients that are really stressed, just to try and reduce the amount of, uh, of excitement and try and reduce um, uh, you know, the respiratory issues that we're seeing immediately, just so that we can try and get control of the situation is ideal. It works very rapidly um, and, uh, and has really good sets of properties, so I think it's, it's perfect for that situation. Nice. Yeah, from uh, from my perspective, for any respiratory case, mm -hmm. congestive heart failure, yes. maybe our asthmatics, uh, which I had a really horrendous asthmatic at mm -hmm. last night, um, uh, heat stroke, okay. respiratory tract obstruction. Mm -hmm. um, my my smallest dose I go to now mm. is 0.3, and I okay. often find myself using 0.4. That's interesting. Okay, that mm. is intramuscular, okay. not IV. Okay. So if I had IV access, I might be a little more conservative and taper sure. up as needed. And I think that's the advantage of IV is you can top up and keep repeating the doses if you need to. If you're not getting enough sedation, you can just add some more. You can always go wrong, but you can't take it away. Exactly. Nice one. Um, and then the, the classic controversy with butorphanol is about our opiate receptor hogging. And it's yes. been around for a while that if you give butorphanol, then can you give something stronger like buprenorphine or methadone or morphine? And uh, But if you've got that on board, then it's potentially reversing other things. Mm -hmm. And um, also the, the idea that as an analgesic, it's not spectacular. Mm -hmm. And we think even if it is effective, it's only lasting 30, 45 mm -hmm. minutes. Um, I ran across a nice little comment in, I don't know if it was Lum or Jones, it was one of the veterinary techs, and they, they just had this little, their only comment on the analgesic effects of butorphanol was, it could be good, maybe <laughs> we're just not using high enough doses, and no, then they maybe. just like left it at that, and so no, no we'll other discussion. We'll leave that for the audience to decide. Yeah, <laughs> you brilliant. digest that and move on. I love that. That's great. No, and I, I entirely agree. I think it's, it's hugely controversial. And a huge amount of people um, still using it in general practice and maybe finding issues with that as part of their pre-medication for surgical procedures, maybe not. Um, but often it's because of a combination of the drugs that we're using. Interestingly, when you look at uh, the anaesthetic protocols for a number of studies looking at a huge range of different things within uh, the anaesthetic research world, there are a lot of people using Butorphanol ACP premedication for routine a very hysterectomy, for example, and then assessing pain scores for various other things that they're adding in. And it is quite clear from those situations that that isn't enough analgesia yeah. for those kind of procedures. Obviously, we talk about butorphanol being better for visceral analgesia, and certainly at higher doses, maybe it is enough. Uh, we do use it at, at fairly low doses, but potentially even as a CRI, it could have some benefit for visceral analgesia. I think because of the other drugs that we have available, and we know that so many other uh, drugs have more potent analgesia um, for certain abdominal procedures, I think it's probably not going to be our go-to. Uh, and I think it's something that we would have to um, have a very specific situation to really consider using. Certainly in terms of uh, using other opioids on top of things like butorphanol, uh, buprenorphine, we do often use butorphanol and buprenorphine in 
cases where we were concerned about hyperalgesia, hyperesthesia, yeah. having developed in our patients with opioids, because I think it's, it's something that maybe we don't recognize very commonly, but something that we seem to be quite attuned to um, at the RBC, um, paid a lot of attention to, particularly when our patients end up on multiple CRIs and we're just not getting anywhere with, with their pain management. And we have to really kind of tailor it back and start removing drugs and thinking about what drugs we're giving and actually are they having a negative impact on our patients rather than a positive one that we really yeah. wanted um, in terms of their pain, obviously as well as the other side effects that, uh, that a lot of the opioids can have. But I think uh, in terms of uh, trying to then add things like methadone, fentanyl, and things on top of butorphan or buprenorphine, it's very difficult to say how much we should be giving. Um, and I think we, um, we need to be very careful about pain scoring our patients if we're then going to be giving more opioids on top of those because we just don't know how effective they're going to be, really. Excellent. I'm glad you brought up the CRI because we often mm. get people on the message boards or elsewhere talking from other countries or maybe they don't have great options available to them or maybe Absolutely. opiates are restricted but Absolutely. they do have butorphanol and mm. I suppose butorphanol CRIs, uh, sorry, infusions mm. or concentrate infusions mm -hmm. um, are not terrible option if that's no. that's all you've got to give no so. absolutely yeah, it's definitely something worth playing with i have very limited experience with with butorphanol as a cri i think it's uh, like i say it's not our go-to uh yeah. choice for, for visceral analgesia but it's something that is definitely worth exploring and i'm sure that there's studies out there that they're looking at its use for for that purpose nice um so i suppose from from a bit of context for our listeners uh andrew and i are based in the uk so from opiates we have available of we've not yet been affected by the opiate shortage like they're experiencing in the states but our typical go-to's are buprenorphine and methadone and fentanyl um i've used hydromorphone when i was working in the states okay um, i've used morphine i've used oxymorphone mm -hmm. um, but you really don't see them in the uk we've got no. morphine but it's very rarely used um i think it's anything we're using it epidurally more than anything yeah we're using it in some of our large animal patients. I think it's our go-to for, for equine cases, really. Uh, we do use uh, methadone occasionally, but um, morphine in the vase is, is just a cheaper option, basically, for large animals. For massive doses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think methadone, like University of Pennsylvania uses methadone as their standard mm -hmm. opiate throughout the hospital, but it is, last time I saw someone mention about $140, $150 a bottle. Yeah, pricey. But... I mean, the average average injection is about 30-odd pounds that people get charged mm. in a lot of practice I've worked in in the UK. Yeah, so mm. if you're listening in the States, try methadone, man. Um, from, a, from a clinical science point of view and side effects point of view, so much smoother, so much nicer than hydromorphone or morphine in my experience. Absolutely. I think everything I've read... I can put my hands up and say I have no experience with hydromorphone, but everything I read, particularly on uh, the veterinary groups as well through social media, a lot of people using hydromorphone, a lot of people seeing side effects, and they are just side effects that we don't see with, with methadone at all. Well, let's talk about our good friend methadone, because okay. it's probably my most used drug in this category in the emergency yeah. room, um, too. either for taking the edge off, um, at a, a dog last night with sort of screaming back pain, mm -hmm. no neurodeficits, but you couldn't get near him. And mum had already dosed um, two times the amount of loxicam um, okay. and I think some paracetamol at home and it wasn't touching him. So um, okay. couldn't couldn't even do an exam without some, some methadone on mm. board. So um, I suppose from my perspective, I'm using it a lot in the acute setting. I'm using it a lot 
intramuscularly. Okay. Because if we've got dogs with fractures or cats with fractures, RTAs and restraining them to place an IV or get some IV access maybe is not feasible, then... Yeah, it's often not realistic. But I think iomethadone is a great option. It works very well. We often do it with patients that are going for surgery as well. If they don't tolerate an IV being placed, then even if they aren't suitable candidates for other sedatives, ACP, um, alpha 2 um, agonists, then I think that methadone is a great option because it does provide some sedation as well, even provided IM. Um, we'd use higher doses, um, but I'm sure that's what you're doing. What kind of doses are you using for these these cases generally? 0.3 a lot. Yeah. If I'm going IM, mm -hmm. if I've got IV access, um, I'll start with 0.2. And I suppose from a trauma perspective, we're very concerned about mentation and, and monitoring. And if you've got patients with signs of head trauma, We've got to assume that whatever caused it is very mm. painful, but you don't want to completely flatten them. And like Definitely. we said earlier, you can always give more. Definitely. And with any opioids, obviously, their nausea is a common adverse effect. And, and certainly there is a risk of vomiting as well. So in patients with head trauma, we have to be careful about inducing vomiting as well. So um, yeah, it's a great option, I think. But yeah, caution with the doses, definitely in those kind of situations in the emergency room. Yeah. Um, so from a... I suppose you think of methadone as a very safe drug historically, mm. but what, besides the nausea, besides the panting that we can see, what other potential side effects can we, we see that might get us into trouble? Fairly classic in terms of the, the opioids, have you said? Yes, yeah, so nausea and panting. So um, people talk about giving methadone slowly, IV and things like that, which is a, a little bit of a myth in a sense, because the methadone does actually uh, have an effect at resetting the thermoregulatory center. So patients will pant when you give it to them. It's just something that we have to factor in and, and override, but certainly giving it slowly doesn't necessarily um, overcome that, that effect. Um, same things with, with the others, really. So yeah, bradycardia, particularly in cases that aren't painful. So we find when using it long term in patients that have had surgery, for example, and they have been on methadone for three or four days and they haven't been perhaps tapered quick enough in terms of maybe getting them down onto buprenorphine or onto just non-steroidals, sometimes in those cases when you've been using it for a few days and your patient doesn't have that sympathetic stimulus, that actually you are pushing the, the heart rate down quite a bit and, and patients become a little bit more sedated and, and can become hypothermic as well. So in that setting, it's worth considering that you can get those effects from opioids. Um, constipation is definitely one which you can do oh. with prolonged opioid use. We had one uh, in the hospital recently and it's a nightmare to manage. Uh, it's a whole other you know, procedure to have to go through to be performing enemas and things like that on, on cases that have already had surgery and things like that. So it's not a particularly nice thing to have to do. So I think, again, yeah, judicious use of, of opioids is sensible. I think um, as well, there's quite a lot of different potential reported adverse effects that, um, that are being discussed at the moment. There's a lot of talk in the human world about opioid-free anesthesia, and most of that seems to centre around the possible effects on the immune system and potentially either in some ways improving immune system, but in a lot of ways suppressing immune system. It's something that we really don't understand, particularly in veterinary patients at all. But it's something that in the future might be um, a topic of, of intense discussion really and certainly uh, there is a lot of information coming forward about opioid free anesthesia in the human world because of the number of side effects obviously not to the same degree as we have uh, in the US where we've already talked about the, the opioid shortage yeah. which is just disastrous but obviously that a lot of that is coming from uh, issues with drug abuse as well so I think obviously we don't have that, that issue so much in, um, in our veterinary patients 
but certainly it's something that may be translational in terms of affecting the immune system as we, we figure out more. Very nice. For the constipation, is that more of a, a GI motility thing or a drying out the colon sort of thing, or do we know? I don't think we know fully. I think it's partly a decrease in motility, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'll, I'll hold my hands up. It's, it's not something that I'm, I'm aware of a mechanism, but that might just be because I don't know rather than that it's not there. Yeah, the fair enough. <laughs> Either way, things slow down and get the... Yeah. Get <laughs> it's fine. I've got the excuse of everything a second year, isn't it? There's time left. <laughs> nice one. Well, so what's your what's your typical approach? Because now you guys are taking mm. a bit more active role in um, the analgesia mm. side of the hospital as well. So do we see much accumulation with methadone? And do you typically tend to back off on the dose or the dose frequency first? I think generally we tend to back off on the dose. I think the, the biggest issue, and I think it's an issue wherever you work, it, even in a, a large referral hospital, people think that, that, that you know, patients are being pain scored every five minutes, but actually that's really not the case. Um, and uh, I think if we could pain score more frequently, definitely we could go down on frequency, but it's really tricky to be sure that our patients are remaining comfortable through that time. So I think we tend, we tend to go down to, from 0.2 to 0.1 milligram per kilo on the methadone first and then drop down to buprenorphine, for example. And I think that, that tends to be what most of our surgeons would, would be doing. We, we have input on cases in terms of analgesia, but it tends to be those cases that are less straightforward. I think, uh, at the RC, we don't tend to have an issue really with um, patients staying on the opioids longer than they really need. Um, unless there has been some kind of issue with their, their analgesia and, and perhaps we're a bit more cautious about reducing the dose and in the long run potentially could have reduced it sooner. But I think that's mostly for the, the really complex cases that, that hopefully we're not seeing too commonly in general practice. Very well. Well, so then from a segue, um, methadone seems to be our pretty standard starting point for a lot of patients. Mm. If we're talking about both escalation and de-escalation, mm -hmm. let's say you're now de-escalating down to buprenorphine. One, how do you feel about buprenorphine as a first-line mm -hmm. analgesic in cats, say mm -hmm. with a fracture or some sort yep. of trauma? And two, um, what sort of frequency and dosing are you using then in those patients? So I think buprenorphine works really well in cats. I think, it again, it's quite patient-dependent. But some cats just won't tolerate methadone and will have the nurses crawling up the walls, not just the cats, because they're trying to manage these really dysphoric cats that are still quite uncomfortable. Um, and you switch into buprenorphine and, and they're absolutely fine. So I think there's definitely something to be, be said for that. I think in, in situations where you have a patient presenting with a fracture, I think Personally, I would probably start with methadone and uh, assess response, basically. And then if we're concerned that the, the cat is you know, very dysphoric or just not comfortable, then it is potentially worth trialing buprenorphine. Um, uh, obviously, it, it's tricky in terms of just reducing to, to, to buprenorphine if the patient um, is still uncomfortable. I think if the, the patient's not dysphoric and, and still showing signs of pain, I think we need to, we need to escalate rather mm. than considering something like buprenorphine and in that situation we're talking about increasing to CRIs of something like fentanyl or possibly you know even ketamine I think by the time we see a lot of these cases um, they they border on acute like uh, sorry on chronic I guess in uh, to some degree because they've been through their GP vets who've then referred them on for assessment by a referral clinician and then they're presented to, to us so there's some chronicity in in the the time scale in terms of their their pain so that's when we'd be considering perhaps other drugs to reduce the amount of hyperesthesia and wind up that they're getting from that pain. Yeah, fair enough. Um, it seems like a lot of the 
practices are working are quite mm -hmm. comfortable giving fentanyl these days, which is really nice to see. Definitely. Like people have syringe pumps mm -hmm. or they're doing it in fluid bags mm -hmm. um, and they're getting comfortable. I suppose the one thing I found myself not totally sure about is de-escalating fentanyl and then okay. if we do feel like fentanyl is a bit too much but we still want to do methadone and buprenorphine, mm. what's our strategy and how do we go about doing that safely? Okay, so I think um, it, it's quite tricky. It, it massively depends on obviously how long you're on your COIs for as well because we know that um, fentanyl and uh, as with a lot of drugs we have to consider their um, context sensitive half-life so we get a distribution of the drug to other compartments within the body, fat being the predominant one when we're talking about fentanyl. And um, if you have a patient that's on a CRI for any length of time, you do build up quite a decent store of the drug in the fat, and it essentially reinfuses back into the plasma once you start eliminating the drug from the plasma. So it's going to essentially equilibrate and maintain those plasma concentrations for a reasonable length of time. And you can find graphs for these in a number of textbooks and in the BSABA anesthesia formulary. And I think it's worth taking that into consideration when you're looking at how long your fentanyl is going to be around for a therapeutic plasma concentration after you're stopping the CRI. But certainly I think if you're using um, fentanyl for post-optive pain or, or pain in, a, in an acute setting um, in an uh, ER ICU, I think we're generally using um, anywhere between one and five microgram per kilo per hour for those patients for the fentanyl. And we generally just decrease the rate by one microgram per kilo per hour as we go through. Um, and once we're um, happy that we're around the one to two microgram per kilo per hour, we then be considering dropping onto, onto methadone. Now, obviously we talked about context sensitive half-life, but the other way to go about that if we're not completely sure is regular pain scoring. If we can provide that and we can make sure that we're giving the methadone at exactly the right time, then perfect. Ideal situation, but obviously that does slightly depend on the amount of availability of staff to be able to do that, which is always, always an issue in any practice you're going to work in. Amen. Yeah. And fentanyl is great, but it's not a set it and leave it drug because you no. can get and I suppose I wasn't as aware of this when I first started mm -hmm. using it. You can get some pretty profound bradycardia, yes, hypotension, yeah, um, mentation changes, mm -hmm. and and accumulation quite quickly. Definitely. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, one thing we're not touched on, and and again, I think a lot of people are doing this now, but mm -hmm. iLube. Oh yes, um, yeah. And I don't think I quite caught on to that when I was a student, but mm -hmm. when I got into my first practice, they were doing it, and I was like, why on earth are you lubricating these animals so much? Mm -hmm. And then I started appreciating. The ulcerations in cats, Massively. the slow blink. Mm -hmm. So, um, what's the what's the reason for frequent lubrication in these opioid guys? Well, the opioids, as you've said, they they change mentation to some degree as well, and patients are going to be possibly dysphoric with the drug. But the main thing is that um, it's going to decrease your rate of blinking and it's going to decrease your tear production, and that's true with a huge number of drugs. Even um, uh, we were discussing the other day about paracetamol possibly reducing tear production as well. And I, I really? don't know if there's any references for that, um, but uh, we were talking about the possibility of research into that area. And I think it's worth considering with any hospitalized patients that their behavior is going to be different anyway. And actually it might be worth lubricating most patients' eyes, to be honest, um, at least a few times a day. Um, but certainly with opioids, I mean, anything between two and four hours, uh, every two and four hours would be ideal, I think, to try and reduce the risk because it is a real issue. And, yeah. and particularly in our aggressive patients, because we see so many patients that are aggressive, they end up um, being on drugs with limited pain scoring because we can't pain score them safely. And then you end up in a situation where patients, again, don't have their analgesia reduced 
perhaps as quickly as, as would be ideal because we're being super cautious because we can't pain score them. Yeah. And then we're not being able to move their eyes and that just becomes a massive issue because you know you get an aggressive patient that, that ends up with an ulcer and the owners then can't medicate its eyes. <laughs> and it's, it's a real issue. And it, but it's something that we see on a, on a you know, fairly regular basis. So um, it's worth just being really cautious about it. Um, it's just a pain for everybody to have to manage and it's really annoying to have to tell an owner that you're going to have to do a you know, conjunctival graft or, or something like that on a patient just because it's gotten a, you know, an ulcer from, from a chronic opioid use in the hospital. <laughs> Surprise! Yeah, oops. <laughs> it's not ideal, it's just something that I think we need to be, be perhaps a bit more aware of across the board. Yep. It's certainly something that we've been you know, trying to push and, and ramp up the frequency of, uh, of the use of the lubricants, even, even at the RBC. Yeah, especially the um, the cats in oxygen after a trauma. They combine some opiates and some oxygen, and that's a surefire way to ulcerate an eye. Yeah, blow some nice warm air at them. Mm. Exactly. Nice and dry. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned paracetamol. I think I was asked if I was sponsored by paracetamol during my internship <laughs> because I administered it with mm-hmm. such such a vigor yep. and uh, excitement. <laughs> um, I love it. Absolutely love it. As okay. a um, <clears throat> pardon me, as um, even even as an acute pain mm. pain drug, especially for my pancreatitis patients or my visceral pain, the really nasty acute hemorrhagic diarrheal syndrome from a visceral pain point of view, you know, mm-hmm. we start them with methadone, we start them on some fluids, some meropotent serenia, mm-hmm. which we think also maybe has some visceral pain and anti-inflammatory properties, but mm-hmm. maybe a different discussion. <laughs> um, and, you know, you throw in that IV paracetamol and it's almost you just see them breathe a sigh of relief like oh that's that's nice mm. um, I've used it in a few post-operative settings um, fairly recently actually because it's not something that immediately springs to mind when I'm looking at controlling a uh, fa- uh, pain in the kind of acute post-operative phase yeah. normally because we're, we're talking about some heavy hitting drugs but I have used it recently in, in a few patients and they have gone from being very, very uncomfortable, very unsettled patients to being very comfortable, very settled patients. And like you say, almost that side of relief when you give it. And I think it's a drug that obviously it's very difficult to compare from a human to a veterinary perspective. Yeah. Um, but it is the drug you're going to go home on after so many different procedures within the NHS. So I think it's um, it's obviously dangerous to completely extrapolate that from, from humans. Um, and we certainly don't have a lot of data at all for paracetamol mm. in animals. I mean, it's, it's basically nothing really um, that we can rely on anyway. Um, I think in, in humans, it's controversial whether it provides significant allergies or not. Um, and certainly in terms of the effect that it has on your liver as well. I mean, people are concerned um, about increases in liver enzymes. We don't know what long-term yeah. effects it can have. But certainly, I think you know, when we're using you know, one, two, three doses just to ride out that acute pain, especially in that kind of trauma setting, it's probably got some, you know, really good potential. Um, but as I say, you know, the, the jury's Da-da. out. Yeah, the jury's out. I can't say yes or no. It's a difficult one. Fair enough. But I do use it. Well, so in people, the... um just get myself on your beanbag here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, in people, uh, ibuprofen paracetamol combo mm-hmm. has outperformed morphine for renal colic in kidney stones in people. Okay, okay. nice. Which is... A nice one. Um, from a toxicity point of view, the typical mm-hmm. doses we're using are 10 to 15 mg per kg mm. every 8 to 12 hours. Um, if you talk to poison control, either mm. the SPCA or VPIS, then they're sort of low end of 
toxic range is about yeah. 100 to 150 mix per kg. Mm-hmm. So from a therapeutic index, much safer than NSAIDs. Definitely. But I suppose that's from a renal perspective. From a mm. liver perspective, we think maybe toxic I think effects just... are less dose-dependent and more idiosyncratic. Possibly, yeah, possibly. And I think that's what we just don't know. I think, I mean, how frequently are we giving paracetamol and then looking at liver enzymes? Yeah. I mean, probably not very often. And how many of our patients that we're giving paracetamol to and then have raised liver enzymes could be put down to their disease as well. So I think, like you, you said, I think in, in an acute situation, certainly in a, an ICU or ER setting, I think that that could be a, at least a good option to consider, definitely. Yeah. I limit it almost exclusively to my, my GI patients, okay. provided we're happy with the, what the liver's doing. Okay. I mean, every trauma patient's going to have an elevated ART if mm. they've been whacked in the sides, but I suppose that's less to do with their liver function and more mm-hmm. just due to, to liver damage. Yeah. But yeah, I, I suppose I've used it in, in fracture patients where I just think maybe they warrant a little something extra. I, I can't say that it's mm. had a profound effect on them because uh, I just don't think it's heavy hitting enough to, to really yeah. take them when they need to. Um, and how about these cases? So um, I remember you telling me actually something last year, which I didn't know, um, which was uh, that we shouldn't be giving on steroidals in the first 24 hours post-trauma because of yeah. the potential effects on, on kidneys. Um, is paracetamol, do you think, a good option then for, for those kind of cases where we're concerned about you know possible um, renal effects with the non-steroidals that we could maybe avoid with yeah, paracetamol? It's a tough one. Um, I think in a stable patient, we know we can give, well, I say we know, we're quite happy to give mm-hmm. NSAIDs and paracetamol together for a time. And hell, if you've got a dog with horrific arthritis and you're trying to manage, throw in a bit of paracetamol. Mm-hmm. You know. um, I can't say you're taking a risk. I know. And my concern with NSAIDs in the trauma patient mm-hmm. is okay, maybe their creatinine is normal on presentation, maybe their blood pressure is normal, mm-hmm. but we know nothing about the microcirculation of the kidney. We don't Absolutely. know if we're going to have, uh, if there was a hypoxic event or some sort of thrombus that hasn't revealed itself. Mm-hmm. And when we've got so many better options, why throw in that NSAID? Why take the risk? You've got a bleeding risk as well with yeah. with some potential platelet dysfunction after NSAIDs. Definitely. and. I don't know. I'm I'm not willing to to take that risk. I see a lot of patients who are RTAs, cats with pelvic fractures, who get NSAIDs on arrival, mm-hmm. and what do they do? They bleed into that pelvis. They get hypertensive. They get anemic. So are we potentially worsening their bleeding? Are we potentially setting their kidneys up for disappointment later yeah. on in life? Yeah, possibly. Um, or three days down the line. So mm. yeah, my general rule is minimum forty eight hours post trauma. Okay, forty eight. Nice. Maybe. Okay. More like 72. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's the thing. We just don't know what's going to change in those patients. Fair enough. You've reminded me actually something about the uh, ACP as well. Again, platelet function is an issue because ACP decreases platelet function. So uh, again, in a trauma setting, maybe another one to to, to avoid. Interesting. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so essentially the the answer is we're screwed. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, so... um, I guess, um, I guess maybe one of the underappreciated things in in pain relief is mm-hmm. maybe immobilization of yeah. fractures. So what what other things can we do for our patients that maybe are not pharmacological okay. that can help with pain relief? 
or comfort. So I think, I mean, are we talking here about bandaging and things like that? So something that's going to provide mobilization of a fracture? Is that is that what you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, is there anything else in our, our mm. arsenal? So if we've got, mm. I mean, I think it's, it's fairly common knowledge if you've got a, a fracture mm. below the elbow or below stifle, that that can be nicely immobilized. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a femur fracture, possibly yeah, with some of the better... Well, more advanced bandaging techniques <laughs> like the spikers, etc. Mm-hmm. So, what is there anything else we can do uh, from from a pain point of view to help these guys? That's not pharmacological. I, mm. Nothing obvious is coming to me no, beyond bandaging. No, no. So, I was just wondering if you. No, no, fair enough. I mean, <clears throat> I, I guess it's typical anaesthetist. Everything just comes back to the pharmacology. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking about making patients, you know, more compliant and things like that. That's what springs mind more than 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 obviously. Uh, anything physical because I think again the if you have a, a poorly compliant patient it doesn't really matter what you do I mean plenty of people will have put bandages on before and then get thrown off you know within 10 minutes just because your patient's flying around the kennel and or it's distressing them as well to some degree and I, I think there's there's plenty of other options in terms of keeping your patients more compliant as well but I guess that's a that's a whole other area no I, I can't think of anything else physically that we can we can really do Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you used a good word there, which is compliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the number one compliance provider, melatomidine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. In the emergency patient, mm-hmm. controversial. Yes. Yeah. How do you like to use it? Use <laughs> the kind of words. <laughs> and I love this drug. Yeah. Uh, I use it a lot, but. Yeah, I do as well, and I think the the importance is just is it the right situation? I think it's always worth. Just stopping and thinking, is this a good drug for this patient? Is it true with all drugs? Um, but I think we, we just need to take that second to stop and think, is there a reason we shouldn't be using it? And, and I think in so many of our trauma patients, because of their presentation, possibly mm. not. There's always those situations where you don't have a choice, I think, sometimes. I think there are um, plenty of options for sedation. Obviously, you know, we can talk about ketamine, we can talk about even alfaxalone as well. Um, but I think, or even just a, a, you know, a bit of propofol, which mm. I think commonly we use in, in a trauma setting as well to try and um, provide enough, I guess, inverted commas, uh, sedation uh, or, or you know, immobilization for, for short procedures. Um, but, but I think in certain situations where you need reliable sedation, you have no choice. We talked about these aggressive patients as well on presentation, yeah. and very and, little will flatten exactly. them enough to handle exactly. them and do what needs. And, to be. and we're not talking about whacking great doses either. We're just talking about using a combination with metotomidine. You know, I think the one of the main things that we we try and aim for in in anaesthesia when we're considering sedation is how can we reduce the amount of side effects from each of the drugs in turn. We're going to create a little bit of a cocktail, if anything. So you know, we might add an opioid. We might add a benzodiazepine, we might add an alpha-2, we might add some ketamine. all depends on the situation. We might add some alfaxalone into that, particularly for you know, IM and cats. It's yeah. great, but that doesn't stop you using it in smaller dogs as well um, for you know, IM station with a combination of other drugs. And, and actually, we can massively reduce the side effects that we're seeing. I think I use and advise the use of melatonin in quite a lot of different situations within ICU um, and ER. Again, we talked about compliance one-off doses and we're talking micro doses so this is the kind of buzzword i guess in anesthesia yes. we love a micro dose of, <laughs> of an alpha two because you can give 900 micrograms and that's yeah a micro dose yeah, exactly <laughs> so we're talking about between one and five uh, microgram per kilo really when we talk about you know, 
going to use the inverted commas again, yeah. a microdose. But um, I, I think commonly that's that's what we're using for pre-med in combination with other drugs. It's what we're trialling for patients that are um, really not compliant or really stressed in the hospital or slightly bordering on aggressive. Um, and, and often we're just using those doses as a trial, and then if it's working, then they're alert on the CRI. So those patients that are throwing themselves around the kennel again, or they are just keeping all the other patients up. And, and, and it's not just for the other patients and for the staff, it's for that patient as well to try and yeah. keep them calm, because they're not going to do themselves any favours at all throwing themselves around the kennel. So um, I think it's definitely got uses there. I think the cases we need to be cautious about with melatonin are the ones that have you know acute bleeding i have felt volume loss to some degree um, they uh, have issues with um, uh, perfusion um, they have issues with um, with their lungs as well so uh, you know in terms of the respiratory system and obviously we worry about that decrease in cardiac output that is the that's the main thing yeah. that we're that we're, we're you know that we're talking about i guess in terms of particular general practice setting everybody you know, loves to quote, oh yeah, but cardiovascular, you know, sorry, um, cardiac output's reduced by 50% and things like this. Well, yeah, that's that's fine, but it, but we have to remember the way the drug works. So that peripheral vasoconstriction is is resulting in that that baroreceptor mediated yeah. decrease in cardiac output. And like I say, in a patient that is volume unloaded, hemorrhaging, anything like that, we're going to avoid metatomidine for sure. But in certain situations, that's fine. You know, most patients are going to tolerate that especially in low doses. So I think it's, it's, it's silly to be scared of the drug, but it's certainly sensible to be considering these situations where, where it might be uh, an issue. It is to be respected. Yeah, exactly. It's a healthy respect. That's all it is. Just don't throw it out because that's the main thing. I think don't just disregard it because of the, um, you know, what people tell you about the, you know, side, you know, pharmacological side effects. Yeah. And it is reversible, which is reversible. a lot of our other drugs are exactly. not. Exactly. It's a huge advantage. You know, you can get into some real trouble giving AFTUs. I, I do in even healthy patients. And the ability to reverse it is excellent. In a lot of situations, any issues you're going to get with AFTUs, you reverse it and they're gone. Yeah. Well, so let's talk quickly about what to expect from melatomidine because I think okay. there is still some anxiety about its use. So yeah, definitely. We see bradycardia. We do. We see hypertension. We do. We see bradycardia because we we see hypertension. Exactly. Um, and we occasionally see AV block, mm -hmm. which we are happy with, mm -hmm. provided our blood pressure is adequate. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, to some degree, and 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 certainly it depends on your heart rate as well. I think everybody's got that heart rate that they're comfortable with getting down to, um, and I think it almost just depends on clinical experience. But um, if you're concerned. You have the option to reverse it. That's yeah. the thing. Even if the blood pressure is good and your heart rate's thirty, it might be just feeling a little bit twitchy, and there's no point in you stressing about it. As obviously, we're talking particularly under anaesthesia as well. Um, if you're getting worried about it and it, and it is just bugging you, you know, you're not comfortable. Just just reverse it. We say this to a lot of our staff at work. You know, if you're not comfortable, just reverse, or maybe even half dose reverse. Um, get the heart rate up a little bit. Everyone's just a little bit happy. You know, there's no point being unhappy when you've got patients <laughs> under anaesthesia. There's so many things that you can consider. But we, as long as we know that, yeah, exactly, blood pressure is good. It's it's good because we've given the, the an alpha two, and, and the heart rate's low because we've given an alpha two. You know, you then obviously have patients that maybe I don't know. Our Dachshunds love to be bradycardic with oh, a bit yeah. of high vagal tone and, and our Frenchies. So. Schnauzers with their GI exactly. issues. So it's always worth considering that our heart rate might be low you know, or even lower because of those reasons as well. Um, so I think with the alpha 2s, we've always got to remember that those, those two phases with the drug, 
You get that initial phase with the peripheral vasoconstriction. You get your baroreceptor mediated decrease in heart rate. And then as your peripheral vasoconstriction starts to wear off, your peripheral vascular tone returns to normal. So people love to talk about altitude causing hypotension. Well, that's not because of the effect on the peripheral vasculature. It's actually because we have a persistent bradycardia, not just because of the peripheral vasoconstriction, but because of the effect centrally. So there is also a centrally mediated decrease in heart rate. So that's often what, um, in combination with maybe some high vagal tone or you know, other things going on, opioid usage, for example, in combination with the altitudes, we're then getting bradycardia and then we're then um, seeing hypotension as well. So um, commonly in, in patients where we're using melatonidine and maybe just pointing with methadone, for example, it's, it's quite uncommon to see hypotension unless you have something else going on with your patient. Um, but certainly in a, in a healthy patient, I, I think it's quite uncommon and it's worth considering, is it your altitude or is there something else going on as well? But in that situation, if you're happy that you've entered phase two and you've just got the centrally mediated effects and your peripheral vasoconstriction's gone, then you can give an anticholinergic. I wouldn't be giving one beforehand because yeah. there's no point increasing your heart rate against um, an increase in peripheral vascular resistance. That's not going to make your heart happy at all. You're at risk of arrhythmias and you're increasing myocardial oxygen demand. But otherwise, yeah, wait for that um, phase of peripheral vasoconstriction to go and why not give an anticholinergic? You could reverse, don't get me wrong, but you lose all of your analgesic benefits the yeah. at the same time. And they do tend to wake up quite quickly once you get that, exactly. that reverse lumbar. Exactly. Yeah, obviously situational dependent, but um, I think it obviously is going to depend on the situation, depend on the case, but I think it's certainly worth uh, considering leaving the drug on board if you can, because you get that analgesia, you get that anxiosis, you get that smoother recovery. Yeah. Um, I had a case transferred a while back from uh, the vet, brought the case over and okay. she had asked their staff to give X amount of mils of dex. Okay. Meaning ah, dexamethasone. I see where this is going. Yeah. And then the dog was flat as a pancake. Okay. So very worried, not sure what had happened. Mm -hmm. um, brought him over to us and heart rate was something like 45. Blood pressure was 180. Okay. So here's why I bring this up because it's important <laughs> though, the side effects of your drugs and yeah, there are sure. very few things that will cause mm. a massive yeah. Hypertension with bradycardia, head trauma being I was one. I say a cushion reflex, but yeah. But there was no, um, there was no head trauma in this dog. Yeah. Just some pharmacology, and we gave it some atomazole, <laughs> and he, he woke right up. Excellent, nice. Um, so we are we are going on a bit, but I think now, if you're ready and willing, we can mm. talk talk a few case scenarios. Absolutely, let's do it. Um, rock on from. Uh, Obsessed with trauma on, on this group, of course, we keep yeah, bringing up. Context is very important. Mm -hmm. um, I had a That's dog the other night who jumped off the sofa and fractured his elbow. Okay. In that situation, I was quite happy to use some methadone, some yep. metatomidine, and some propofol to sedate him to do sure. some radiographs. What about our real trauma patients? Mm. Well, real trauma patients. So, <laughs> high-rise syndrome cats, they've yeah. fallen out of the fourth floor, or our RTAs, or mm -hmm. our dog fights, or mm. etc. What then, let's say we're starting with some methadone analgesia, mm. how are we going to go about imaging those patients once they're more stable mm, sure. to figure out what's going on? Mm. Well, I think there there is an advantage in those situations to, um, again, assuming that we've 
been able to stabilize them as best as possible to anesthesia, to be honest, rather than uh, sedation, because I think in many ways we have more control of a, of a different number of factors. And there's more that we can do as well if there are complications under anesthesia. Um, I, I think sedation's a, a, a difficult one. As I say, it massively depends on your patient and it massively depends on their compliance and comfort levels. But certainly, if you're looking to do um, procedures on a patient who is um, really uncomfortable and, and, and not compliant, we, we just need to be considering combinations of drugs. And it might be that you consider um, a bolus with ketamine, fentanyl. I mean, these are drugs that we're using even in uh, a, a severe tandard septic peritonitis, for example. Yeah. Um, we're using them as, as co-induction with perhaps a bit of profile, maybe not if they're tandard enough, but these, these drugs, as much as they have side effects in, in a one-off bolus, um, maybe even with a low dose of melatonin, as we've discussed, um, or maybe even um, just with a small amount of alfaxone or propofol. Again, we're just trying to limit the, the effects that we're having by, by I guess, spreading the, the, the drugs out and using a, a lower doses of, of each of the drugs that we're using. Yeah. So I remember talking with Carolina about mm. uh, her sort of protocol, and obviously she is, you know, superhuman level anesthetist, <laughs> and course. she was talking about um, maybe GDV induction, yes, and she would use something like 10 micrograms per kilogram fentanyl, mm -hmm. 0.5 mix per kig, midazolam, mm -hmm. for the uninitiated, mm -hmm. or maybe that might be a little intimidating. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's difficult if you don't know what to expect. Um, I think with uh, doses like that of, of fentanyl, we can be getting uh, some respiratory depression, and uh, as long as we're happy to ventilate our patients, then then that's fine. Ideally, we'd have capnography, I think, for, for those kind of situations, but certainly that's definitely a, a possibility. Even um, if you have a, a quieter patient, five microgram per kilo of fentanyl would, would potentially be fine just for um, a sedation in combination with some ketamine maybe or, or an alpha 2 or yeah. um, uh, you know, or some, some alpha 2 like we've said. A lot of the critical care guys seem to favour fentanyl maybe over butylphenol or mm -hmm. over other drugs because like you said you get less of the panting. Yes. So mm -hmm. if you've got a pleural effusion mm -hmm. or a pericardial effusion or a pneumothorax and okay. you're trying to get either a line-in for sampling mm. or for removal, then mm. it seems like they really like a bit of midazolam with mm -hmm. some fentanyl okay. IV because you get a nice plane of sedation with mm. some analgesia without the panting. Okay, um, and what kind of doses for the fentanyl? You I think they're using, again, five as a starting point, five okay. mics per kilo. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, if you've got a 30 kilo dog with a pericardial effusion, mm. the last thing you want is them panting on some methadone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. I, I really quite like that. I think if you're aware that, that we can have um, respiratory depression with a bolus of uh, fentanyl, it is, it, it's not necessarily that, that common, and certainly that dose, it shouldn't be that profound, but, but certainly if, if we give that quite quickly, then you could see some. So yeah, I think as long as you're aware of those those kind of side effects, particularly with the medazolam, you're gonna get some, some nice muscle relaxation as well, and it should allow you to do those things that you need to yeah. for, for an X-ray or ultrasound. A bit of apnea is fine. Yeah. Easier to stab the heart. No problem. <laughs> oh, you have that. Fine. Oh, there we go. Oh, I didn't know that's what we wanted. There you go. <laughs> Sorted. Well, so I think the major barrier to, to anesthesia mm. in a lot of practices seems mm. to be cost. And yes. I agree with you. It's a bit of a maybe a false economy in that mm. we say, oh, well, we do sedation. Maybe it's a bit safer. Maybe it's a bit mm -hmm. cheaper. But actually, you don't have a garden mm. or protected airway. Sure. Maybe you don't have as much monitoring equipment as mm -hmm. you like. We're not doing capnography. Yeah. Maybe we're not doing pulse ox. Maybe it's just hands-on monitoring, mm -hmm. which 
works well for a lot of patients. Oh no, absolutely. So, yeah. Maybe you need to have your hands you on them. Don't need much more than you know to be able to feel a pulse, to be honest, to do a fairly decent job at you know running an anaesthetic, to be honest. Um, and we're working at a slightly different level at the RBC. A lot of our cases being fed from you guys in uh, ICU and ER are, are fairly sick. So I think there's an advantage to having a lot of monitoring that we do because we can detect changes a lot quicker um, if things go a little bit pear-shaped. Um, but generally, if you're running anesthesia day to day, you, you know, it's great. I mean, ideally we'd be monitoring blood pressure and things like that, but we, we can't forget the basics. I mean, if every practice had capnography, you know, pulse ox and, and, uh, and Doppler, that's amazing. That's, that's yeah. so good, um, and I think that's what we should be striving for. But certainly, we can't forget the basics of just being able to feel a pulse and checking your patient. It seems like we're quite spoiled in vet meds from a capnography point of view. I think yeah. it's more widespread in veterinary medicine than it might even be in human hospitals. Really? Okay. And they, well, waveform mm. capnography, yeah. and it seems like a lot of ERs and a lot of human mm. uh, emergency hospitals have um, maybe colometric or oh, yeah. okay. um, capnography mm. rather than, yeah. than waveform okay which is interesting so that is i hadn't appreciated that yeah it's nice that we we have that and i think that a lot of practices out there have it and i think it's just utilizing it because you know if you haven't come across it and and you're unsure of what your waveforms mean or what the numbers mean then then it's it's a real challenge to actually get you know people using it but but i think that there are so many nice resources out there for it and it is really interesting i mean i did say that but but i think it's really interesting and i think it um it, it gives us something else to focus on with our, with our aesthetics and makes things a little bit more interesting and uh, and can be really useful in picking up problems i mean we pick up problems all the time even in our oh, I was I was really surprised on my mm. anesthesia rotation, mm. the amount of troubleshooting that, or the amount of troubling situations yes. I got out of by keeping a close eye yeah. on the waveforms. Definitely, um, I'll put some some info in the show notes as well. Okay. Capnography.org sounds good. Um, VASG and some other bits and pieces for people Perfect. who are, are curious about that. So, well, to to taper us off of uh, our pharmacology chat. Um, I suppose we've we've talked about our big boys. We talked about metotomidine, esperimazine, mm -hmm. butorphanol, opiates. We've touched briefly on ketamine, mm -hmm. midazolam. Um, the the other thing that now I do more frequently that maybe I, I wasn't doing a couple of years ago is mm. uh, procedural station with propofol and okay. alfaxlan on top of those things. Yep. So I don't know if if people are using it that mm. way, but you know your your typical comfort. Pre-medded induction doses are mm. anywhere from two to five mix yeah. per kg, depending on the patient. Mm -hmm. But now I think you can get away with with a balanced sedation with anywhere mm. from a quarter to a half mix per kg up to a yeah. mix per kg at a time, given as needed, just to facilitate mm. that last X-ray or that maybe potentially painful one. Um, Definitely. I mean, I think it will see you through. You know, uh, an extra five ten minutes. Then yeah, great. Why not? It saves you having to top up your other sedations and, and and I guess at, at lower doses should have at least a noted effect on your cardiovascular system. So yeah, why not? I think it's, it's something that's quite common in those situations and, and we do it all the time, you know, even if we're moving patients around the hospital or um, we're, you know, we, we need our patients to be asleep for longer, they've already still got drugs on that are causing vasodilation. If you're just talking about patients that are sedated and don't have volatile on board, then sure, it should have you know, a limited effect on their Cardiovascular system, from for, as far as I'm concerned. Well, let's get geeky. Okay. Let's talk expert level. Let's talk. <laughs> well, 
let's not say X-Men level, because then I might put people off. That's not fair. I'll have to put a disclaimer in the description. Because <laughs> if I can do it. Okay. With some degree of um, <laughs> Local anesthesia. Yeah. So um, I know a lot of what you guys are doing mm-hmm. is under anesthetic, but yep. a lot of these patients are getting sedated or maybe mm. some water meditation that might facilitate these sort of things. So would you tell us a bit about some local anesthetic protocols mm. or blocks that might work for our semi-conscious mm-hmm. emergency patient? Um, and then also tell us about the exciting things you've got going on in the realm of local anesthesia. Sounds good. Um, I mean, local anesthesia is a huge topic at the RBC. The anesthesia team have been pushing it for years now. Um, and there's some really interesting possibilities in what we can use um, local regional anesthesia for. And I think it's hugely underutilized in general practice. It's really interesting. It allows us massively to reduce the amount of systemic drugs that we have on board. And you can just imagine that in you know, an ICU trauma ER setting that that is ideal. Yeah. If we can limit the amount of ketamine fentanyl that we're using, I think everyone's a winner, really. So um, in terms of what we can do day-to-day in these kind of settings, I think it's quite reasonable to be considering some hindering blocks. So something like ephemeral and a sciatic block really shouldn't be too hard as long as you're happy that your patient really isn't going to move. Um, And I think, again, if we're talking about just topping up with with a Pro 4 fine, or if we're talking about patients that are a bit zonked on their opioids and and other drugs that we've we've given them, then I think that's perfectly appropriate. I I think um, it's a little trickier when we're talking about things like a brachial plexus block. Obviously, there's really important structures. Not that there aren't in the hind limb, but there's, you know, a real accumulation of really important structures within the the brachial plexus um, area that we're, we're trying to block there. And I think that the um, having a moving patient trying to do that block would be pretty tricky. So I think we just have to be uh, comfortable that they're, they're going to be still. And certainly with sedation, we can achieve that. The, the next thing is obviously practices um, having access to a method of providing these blocks. And I think nerve stimulation techniques, if you're comfortable with that, are a great option. I prefer using ultrasound purely because we can see the needle, we yeah. can see our structures. And I find it's a lot more successful than, is. than the stimulators. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the literature supports that, and, and I think definitely from, from my experience, I would say that using ultrasound guidance, we can see those structures, we can see the local anaesthetic essentially bathing those structures. It's really quite satisfying. Yeah. And then you go through for your TPLO, or you, know, you go through for your Y-fraction fixation in a little Frenchie puppy that's fallen off the sofa as we discussed earlier and they are comfortable through all of that procedure with maybe 0.1, 0.2 methadone on board maybe they don't even need that in a lot of situations but obviously you know our block's never going to be a hundred percent necessarily so we need to consider having at least something else on board um, for that possible situation but definitely I think that they are blocks that are really really achievable obviously in a in a general practice setting we're not talking about emergency medicine but dental blocks I mean actually I say we're not talking about an emergency setting but how many patients are going to come in with head trauma that, that may have you know fractured jaw or anything yeah. like that particularly you know our cats with a you know simple fractures but those cases would be ideal cases to have some nerve blocks um, something that's just going to provide them some some acute pain relief through that that initial initial presentation and allows you time to to get other drugs on board as well so i definitely think that there's options there i think the the way things are moving at the moment we are looking a lot more at the placement of catheters as well for providing longer term uh, local regional anesthesia particularly with brachial plexus catheters and epidural catheters um, and it's 
it's something that's come up and, and have gone away again in terms of how popular these things are. Um, the issue is mostly down to the time that it takes to, for us to provide these, um, but it's purely because the, they're fairly novel techniques or they've come back around again and, and we're, we're starting to place them again. But, but realistically, you know, we're doing them really proficiently now um, in this setting and, and it's certainly a really good option for longer term, term management of, of our trauma cases. We have a lot of cases with pelvic fractures, for example, that yeah. just are not comfortable for a good 12, 24 hours post-surgery. Um, and it's really difficult, even with multiple drugs on board, CRIs, to um, get them comfortable. And it might be that there is um, some kind of nerve involvement in terms of the trauma or the surgery um, that's causing some kind of neuropathic pain as well. And, and actually, when we're placing epidural catheters in, in these patients, we're just not seeing that same issue. We um, overcome the issues um, with hyperesthesia, um, for example, as well, in those situations where we're using a lot of opioids. Um, and we can have patients eating post-optively because they don't have all that nausea, they don't have um, all of the decreased gut fertility, all these yeah. other side effects that we're seeing from, from these opioids, the dysphoria, the sedation. You know, these patients will be eating within four, five, six, seven, eight hours after surgery, which is just Beautiful. not heard of when we're using systemic analgesia. The one case that really sticks in my mind was a, um, I think, seven-year-old um, labradoodle who uh, presented with a gastric wall abscess. It actually invaded into its pancreas and had Jesus. multiple abscessated nodules through its pancreas. Um, they ended up doing a, a partial gastric resection and um, they removed half of its pancreas as well. So the surgery itself was was quite a painful one for the dog yeah. and we struggled uh, in drop to control its pain. So we suggested placing this epidural catheter um, afterwards um, the dog recovered, recovered with um, 0.1 megapicic of methadone on board and then we were using rapivacaine through the uh, catheter, which is um, a local anaesthetic that a lot of people may not have come across, I guess, in, in general practice or even in, in a referral setting, but um, it is similar to pivocaine, I guess, um, uh, in, in the way that it works, and um, it lasts for about four to six hours. But in that case, we had the patient um, walking around like it was a normal dog within about three hours post-optively. It was eating at four hours post-optively. It was Good basically Lord. acting like a normal dog with no systemic opioids on board because we didn't top up that methadone that it had um, on board by the end of the surgery. So <laughs> um, it's just insane what we can achieve. And, and so far, touch wood, um, we are seeing pretty low rates of complication with these. Um, certainly as low as in the, the human world so far. Obviously, we're talking about limited cases compared to the 10,000 that they're you know, reporting in uh, paediatric epidural catheter um, infection rates and complication rates, um, but we're talking less than 1% you know, uh, in terms of issues. So, so I think that's something that's really interesting going forward to, to, to potentially look at, and, and I think until we do a decent number of them, there's always going to be a little bit of resistance from, from, um, uh, from other teams, and for us in terms of putting these forward as, as ideas for, for our cases as well is the big question mark, you know, is there an infection risk when yep. we're putting something in the epidural space or in the brachial plexus or, you know, is there is there a complication with the catheter itself? Um, and yeah, sure, there are issues, um, but certainly we don't seem to be um, seeing anything um, commonly. So um, I think it's definitely something that we'll see more of going forward. Um, and again, ultrasound, uh, definitely big assistance in doing all of those things. Should have just given them paracetamol, man. 
I know. Sorted them right I know. Out. I don't know why I bother, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess the trend trend was for a while, and, and to close up this discussion, was um, lidocaine, bupivacaine mixtures. Mm. And then we had that paper out that showed maybe it's, it's less effective. Yes. So lidocaine, shorter onset, mm-hmm. or quicker onset, but shorter duration. Mm-hmm. Bupivacaine... Uh, longer onset but longer duration so mixture of the two maybe increases your onset and reduces your duration but why then Repivacaine why not Bupivacaine or Lidocaine? So Repivacaine actually has a slightly better cardiovascular uh, profile in terms of its effects so um, if we were to inject it intravenously then um, it would have less effect than Bupivacaine um, in terms of its cardiovascular toxicity so um, uh, we find that um, that we get a decent length of, uh, of analgesia with that. So, uh, as I say, about four to six hours, um, but we're just limiting the effect that we have in terms of uh, the side effects with it. And then from a practical point of view, mm. typically we're dosing half to 1.5 mg per kg with Vivacaine. So in some situations we're going as high as two, two and a half milligram per kilo as well. So, um, yeah, I think it, it almost depends on on how many ways you're using local and I have to say um, we're using local in a lot of different ways. I think the other one that we didn't um, cover actually was the um, TAP block or the the transverse abdominal plane block. Um, It's a very very simple block and and, and you can attest this I think you you did a few when you were on rotation with us. Even in a tiny cap it was exactly something where you've got you know very very thin muscle layers but essentially we're talking about covering the nerves that come out of the spine down the side of the thorax and they're covering all of the skin and musculature of the abdomen and they're running between the transverse abdominus muscle and the internal abdominal oblique so we've got our transverse abdominus internal abdominal oblique and our external abdominal oblique and essentially we're trying to get a needle into that fascial plane the transverse abdominal plane between the transverse abdominus muscle and the internal abdominal oblique. And by infusing um, the local there, we can cover the majority of the nerves that are then covering the abdomen. So even when we're doing epidurals, for example, and we're covering all the viscera, we're not covering the skin and the the musculature. So we often use a combination of the two. So like I say, we might split our repivacaine dose or use a little slightly higher repivacaine dose by putting some in the epidural space because we get maybe reduced systemic absorption from the epidural space anyway, compared to obviously sticking it or in the skin so uh, and then we use the the rest in the transverse abdominal plane block and that's really common for um for patients that are having all sorts of gi surgeries oh nice so i think again that one ultrasound guided it's really really simple to identify those layers and with a little bit of practice it's like playing video games so it's quite tricky at first to you know if you're you're, you don't have that kind of um i guess manual dexterity or is that yeah. the right word but but certainly that no, kind of like coordination, coordination exactly. challenging at first. Yeah. Was that your experience at the time? Did it take you, do you think, a couple of attempts to, to get fairly comfortable with it? or Definitely. Yeah. Like I, I, I use ultrasound quite a lot, okay. and I've done a lot of cystos mm. and I've done the centeses, but I find when you're, you're trying to reach mm-hmm. a target that's a couple of centimeters in and you're trying to keep your entire needle in plane with mm-hmm. the probe the entire time yeah it is it's challenging tricky. yeah and you have to be very because you've got two things going on you've got the probe and then you've got the needle so you're mm. trying to uh not rotate the probe too much or move your needle mm. too much and it's tempting to try and move the probe to find your needle again but really yeah. what you want is to keep your needle in plane yeah, so i exactly. sat down with that block of gelatin oh, or yes. wax and just yeah, practiced <laughs> when i was bored and that was super That's helpful good. yeah 
Um, I'm not and you can do the same thing with all sorts of things. You can yeah, get some get some vegetables or something from the supermarket, and you can practice on those as well. So um, it, there's definitely ways of getting comfortable with with I guess old sound needling techniques. And there are recipes like for mm. homemade um, like gel blocks oh, really? that you can suspend grapes and things in, so that you can get <laughs> awesome. good at okay. finding a nice target. I like it. Nice. I might look up some recipes. Maybe we'll put those on the on the website as well. I'll crack it all in there. <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, no, as I say, it just takes practice. And I think people are concerned about the cost of adding these things in yep. and um, the, the time that it takes as well. And I think when you're just starting out, it's worth giving yourself a time limit. Give yourself 10 to 15 minutes. Give it a go. If it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. You can stop. You can do try it with another case. Yep. You know, we're, we're not talking about just going straight in and learning on, on animals, but certainly, like we said, we can get models. Many people can get hold of cadavers or people will donate pets um, post-mortem for, for uh, medical research or something like that. And, it, and it's not unrealistic to be able to, to, to do that and practice on, on cadavers as well. It's something that we do as residents um, uh, at the RBC. Um, we have a CPD department that, that will acquire cadavers for various courses, and we often end up using those to, to perform the local blocks on and practicing. But certainly, you know, if you give yourself a time limit on it and, and you, you don't spend too long with your patient under anesthesia or under sedation to do those procedures, I think it is really uh, something that you can learn quite quickly. And it, you will surprise yourself on how much you're using these blocks and how much you can reduce your systemic analgesia, and it, you will notice a difference. That's the great thing. Nice. It's, a, it's a noticeable difference, and your patients will be out of the hospital quicker. I'm sure of it. Well, there was a great video at IVEX two years ago of a guy. Mm. He's um, uh, dual boarded ECC and anesthesia, and he yeah. did a uh, showed a video of a surgery that he did a femoral sciatic on a dog who had a massive mm. wound that was getting debrided. That the dog was conscious, like it was sedated, but nice. it was looking around and he wasn't doing a thing. He was mm. very happy with it. It's great. Um, do you have a mix opiates in with your local blocks? Buprenorphine, uh, so morphine. Not with our local blocks. We tend to um, we tend to just use our, our local anaesthetics. I think the um, uh, the issues, I guess, surrounding using preservatives in, in those kind of situations, particularly epidurally, um, are there and I guess fairly unknown to some degree in terms of the effect that those have long term. Yeah. Um, certainly with epidurals, we're using morphine really commonly. We probably use morphine more than we do local anaesthetics for a one-off shot epidural, um, purely because um, of, of the risk when we're talking about abdominal procedures and using you know, higher doses of causing hypotension. Because if we're getting that you know, local anaesthetic uh, that far cranially within the, 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 the spinal cord, um, we can block the sympathetic chain and get quite profound hypotension. So we tend to be using just morphine for those unless it's a pelvic or hind limb procedure. But otherwise, um, we're, we're generally just using the, the local on its own. There, there's a whole host of studies on using alpha twos and, and buprenorphine, like you yeah. say. Um, but dental blocks, I think. Uh, yeah, particularly, and, and I think there's some for femoral and sciatic as well. But um, for the extra duration that you get, I'm not sure it's it, it's hugely variable in terms of what's reported in, in terms of an extra duration. But um, I'm not sure it's necessarily. Come on, it's the tooth doctor. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue into the next podcast, huh? And as a, a little pearl, uh, mm. avoid adrenaline or epinephrine in your local anaesthetics, especially if you're getting mm. close to arteries and veins. Yeah, you know, I think it's a good I think there's there is some some potential benefit to, to adding uh, base constrictors in certain certain blocks, but I think yeah, anywhere you're around a big artery or vein, it's probably worth avoiding. Fair enough. So to bring us home, okay. tell us about your super exciting research project that you've got going uh, on. So we're going to talk about wireless ultrasound. So this is a project that um, 
my, I guess, mentor uh, in my last job um, uh, kind of brought to the table uh, the idea of these uh, wireless ultrasound probes. And we, we talked about the idea of a research project looking at uh, this wireless probe, and which at the time was very new to the market and not being used in, in the human world uh, uh, really um, at all. It was, it was very, very new. Um, and using it um, uh, for these local anaesthetic blocks, but comparing it to a standalone, you know, standard ultrasound machine with a wired probe. Um, and I think we can probably see quite a lot of advantages to not having a wired probe in a big bulky anaesthetic machine to, to drag around your ER or ICU, um, uh, as well as your, your anaesthesia department. But um, we wanted to just see um, the ease of use of the probe and um, whether it was any good essentially in terms yeah. of finding the structures that we needed. So um, we have been trying to acquire a probe for uh, some research. Well, we shan't mention the uh, the manufacturer. No, no, no we, we, we won't mention the, the, the manufacturer. They've been really, really good actually. It, it's more just an issue of funding to be honest. Um, the funding in, in any institution, I think, wherever you work is, is can be quite challenging. So it's taken us a little while to, to get that sorted, but um, actually the, uh, the RBC of in that bill um, because they, they I think see quite a lot of potential in the, the probe itself not just for anesthesia but for the emergency and ICU settings oh, yeah. um, and for us it's really exciting uh, because we think it will just make the provision of all of our blocks and a lot of the procedures that you guys are doing uh, in ER and ICU that bit easier so I'm imagining connecting this wireless probe now we're getting a double-headed probe with a linear and convex um, a head on either end, uh, which is uh, we can switch between. We're connecting that wirelessly to any Android or um, Apple device. Mm -hmm. It can be a phone or an iPad. Um, one of the major advantages is that you can um, have as many devices connected as you want. Oh, so for the students exactly. or anyone else? Exactly. So if there's not great access around the patient, for example, um, in different situations, then it does mean that other people can be looking at the, the screen as well, just you know, from a little bit more distance. Um, and for an ICU setting, I think it's perfect. So the amount of times I see the nurses trying just to do a simple bladder scan and they've got to have their arm in the kennel and they've got to have the machine on the side. They can't really watch what's going on with the patient. And, and it's certainly not that practical. Um, you know, we're talking about um, having to get a scanner out every time you want to do a bladder check in the neuro ward, for example. I just think it's you know, it's crazy, and and for us to be able to do fast scanning or even just look at the heart briefly, yeah. I mean, obviously we need to look at the, the quality of these units, but but certainly if they stand up to the other machines, then there's no reason that we couldn't be using them for a quick you know left atrial aortic ratio yeah. to see a risk of heart failure and things prior to sedation or, or anaesthesia, which I think is is quite exciting. And certainly in terms of the, the local blocks, obviously that's where we're focusing. So we will be working with um, some cadavers first to see um, how uh, much, uh, how accurate it is in terms of this, uh, getting the local anesthetic to the nerves, which is what we need, obviously. Um, and then we'll be moving up to clinical cases if it stands the test. Excellent. And go from there. Yeah, because real bedside ultrasound is 100% human oriented, isn't it? Absolutely. Because you've got them on the trolleys, you don't want them taken off because then you drop them and break them. Absolutely. And then you either risk putting on the floor and someone mm. chopping your head off because you've done that. Exactly. Or yeah. doing yeah. something like this. And you've obviously got the cost of the probe and the machine when you're talking about these wired units. But obviously in this case, yeah, you've got to maybe purchase a tablet if you want a slightly bigger screen, but you can use your yeah. phone and everybody's got a phone now and so the android tablets are so cheap yes, like exactly. the, the the smaller mm. basic ones mm. if you're using it purely for for that yeah i can really absolutely and the overall cost even when buying a tablet and the units itself it is great so again yeah it's worth 
looking into if uh, if that's uh, something that could work for your practice. Certainly. Yes. A huge amount of application in general practice as well. Cost is often the issue that, that we're facing yeah. in general practice, which is reasonable. So I think that it's worth looking at a, a cheaper option that's going to provide some more flexibility as well in that yeah. situation. Anyway, that's the yeah. that's one of the many research projects that I have going on, but just a small insight. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming down. Anytime. Um, appreciate it's been a long one, but your vigilance is much appreciated. No, no, I think it's... Uh, Interesting topic, certainly. Um, well, we'll put some more info in the show notes. Um, it's important to note Andrew is on Instagram at Dr. Andrew Foster, Dr. Underscore Andrew Foster. Uh, Dr. Foster underscore vet. Excellent. Yeah, screw that up the first time the video is all done. That's all good. It's not the simplest. There's a very good video of Andrew doing a central line up on the, the website and YouTube as well. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Which we'll link to. Um, so you can see his mad wire micro skills. <laughs> um, otherwise, thank you for listening and your time. Goodbye.